Hello and welcome to yet another edition of the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Nahum O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. On today's episode, we are going to begin our series on the history of hermeneutics. So I love history. The subject has fascinated me for many years. History is all around us all the time. Everyone and everything has a history. Again and again, I will stand in a place and try to fathom the history of that place, a history of which I am now a part. Take, for instance, my 2017 trip to the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, Germany. The Brandenburg Gate was built in the late 1700s by order of Frederick William II. Soon thereafter, the infamous Napoleon Bonaparte marched triumphantly through the arches. In fact, Napoleon confiscated the horse and chariot statue that stood atop the Brandenburg Gate and took it back to France. The statue, known as the Berlin Quadriga, was returned to Berlin after Napoleon was removed from power. Just over a hundred years later, another dictator marched beneath the Brandenburg Gate, accompanied by the Schutzhaffel, the Nazi SS. That dictator was, of course, Adolf Hitler. Now fast forward a few more years and the Brandenburg Gate became a Cold War symbol of the divide between East and West Germany. The Berlin Wall passed beneath its arches. As I stood before the Brandenburg Gate in 2017, I paused to reflect on the history of this place and the monument. Just imagine what it would have been like to witness Napoleon marching through the gates. If you were a soldier in the French army, that day would have been glorious. If you were a German citizen, however, it would likely have been a fearful or dreadful sight to behold. As I stood before the Brandenburg Gate that day, just for a moment, history came alive. As I said before, I love history. But there is another reason why I love history. History is a teacher. As the ancient Roman philosopher Marcus Tullius Cicero once said, quote, History is the witness of the past, the light of the truth, the living memory, the teacher of life, the messenger of antiquity, end quote. History is a teacher, and we would do well to listen. History is a record of past events which helps us better understand the present and prepare us for the future. For example, if a child unknowingly touches a hot surface and is burned, hopefully the child reflects upon this experience and learns that he should not touch hot surfaces now and or in the future. Thus, history has helped the child understand the present and better prepared him for the future. Of course, there will always be some who fail to learn or learn properly from past events, or as George Santayana famously noted, quote, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, end quote. With this in mind, I'd like to direct our attention now to a study of the history of hermeneutics. Yes, you heard that right, even hermeneutics has a history. Studying the history of hermeneutics will teach us about the hermeneutics utilized by Christians in the past, including such heroes of the faith such as Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and many more. It'll help us better understand the modern views of hermeneutics, and Lord willing, it'll better equip us for future biblical interpretation. 
Studying the history of hermeneutics will benefit us for multiple reasons. As I noted before, this study will inform us of the principles of biblical interpretation utilized by Christians and non-Christians of the past. Kaiser and Silva note, quote, A careful study of their work will save the student from losing valuable time and running down unfruitful rabbit trails that have already been tried and found wanting, end quote. We will examine the hermeneutical principles of great saints of the past and those of the heretics. As Kaiser and Silva noted, this will reveal both proper and faulty hermeneutics. The faulty hermeneutics can be identified and avoided, while the proper methods can be implemented. Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard agree, quote, A critical assessment of the major interpretive methods practiced throughout history challenges readers to develop a personal approach to biblical interpretation that maximizes the opportunities and minimizes the pitfalls, end quote. A study of the history of hermeneutics will identify for us the points of disagreement within biblical interpretation. These points of disagreement are, as Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard write, the, quote, key issues, unquote, of biblical interpretation. Essentially, disagreements on these points have led to the multiple methods of hermeneutics which exist today and which existed in the past. This is an important point. There are multiple methods of hermeneutics. We have discussed them before in our study around meaning. However, knowing that there are multiple views of hermeneutics helps us, as Henry Verkler writes, quote, to overcome the temptation to believe that our system of interpretation is the only system that has ever existed. An understanding of the presuppositions of other methods provides a more balanced perspective and a capacity for more meaningful dialogue with those who believe differently, end quote. As we examine other methods, we'll be able to see how many false doctrines have appeared as a result of those methods. Heresies are often the result of poor exegesis, and poor exegesis is likely the result of poor hermeneutics. Frederick Farrar once wrote, quote, Exegesis has often darkened the true meaning of Scripture, not evolved or elucidated it, end quote. While we may disagree with many of Farrar's conclusions, his point is well taken. There is such a thing as bad exegesis. By studying the history of hermeneutics, we may, as Kaiser and Silva note, quote, trace the influences that led to some of the misunderstandings of God's word, end quote. Farrar elaborates further on a long history of misinterpretation. He says, quote, and how often has the Bible thus been wronged? It has been imprisoned in the cells of alien dogma. It has been bound hand and foot in the grave clothes of human tradition. It has been entombed as a sequitur by systems of theology. End quote. Now he goes on, but you get the point. The word of God has endured a long history of misinterpretation. Thus it behooves us to learn from the past and not fall into the same pitfalls. Farrar concludes, quote, We study the past not to denounce it, not to set ourselves above it, not to dissever ourselves from its continuity, but to learn from it and to avoid its failures, end quote. Roy Zuck refers to the history of interpretation as signs on a highway, warning us of the dangers of ahead. 
He writes, quote, In a similar way, understanding how individuals and groups have interpreted the Bible in the past can serve as signs to us, giving us warnings, direction, and information, end quote. Not only can we learn from examples of poor hermeneutics and poor exegesis, we can also observe how others have responded to such errors. For example, we can observe how Martin Luther responded to the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation. We will see that Luther's response challenged not only the key doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, but also the interpretive principles behind such doctrines. Ultimately, a study of the history of hermeneutics will leave us with a healthy respect for the art and science of biblical interpretation, or as Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard write, quote, knowledge of the history of interpretation cultivates an attitude of humility towards the interpretive process, end quote. The fact of the matter is that biblical interpretation can be a challenging task. Additionally, men are fallible and are always susceptible to errors. Yes, as Martin Luther noted, even the Pope. Studying the erroneous interpretations and methods of the past ought to humble us as we approach the same interpretive task. After all, years from now, future Christians may examine our own interpretive work with a critical eye. In our study of the history of hermeneutics, we will examine the interpretive methods from seven different periods of history. First, ancient Jewish period. This period begins with Ezra and continues up to the time of Christ. In Nehemiah 8.8, we read, quote, They, meaning Ezra and the Levites, read from the book and from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, end quote. This period, according to Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, likely, quote, spawned a new Jewish institution, the Targum, end quote, which is the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. This period will also cover the post-Alexander the Great Hellenistic period, quote, Hellenistic Judaism, according to Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard, sought to integrate Greek philosophy, especially that of Plato, with Jewish religious beliefs, end quote. It was during this time also that the Septuagint was produced. We will also cover the Qumran community, the now infamous group located near the Dead Sea, where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Finally, we will examine Rabbinic Judaism, a group which arose in response to the Greek influence, who stressed a return to the Hebrew Scriptures. The second period that we will study is the Apostolic Period. This period covers the New Testament period, the time of the Apostles, roughly 30 AD to about 100 AD. The main focus of our study, of course, of the Apostolic Period will be the New Testament use of the Old Testament. This, I believe, is perhaps the most important portion of our study in the history of hermeneutics. We will examine how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. We will see how the Apostles interpreted the Old Testament. And this is important because we want to interpret the Scriptures in the same way that Jesus and the Apostles did. The hermeneutics of Christ and the apostles should be our hermeneutic today. The third period we'll discuss is the patristic period. This period extends from 100 AD to about 600 AD. During this portion of our study, we'll examine the works of Clement, uh, Hermes, Justin Martyr, Origen, 
Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, and many more. Louis Burkhoff divides this period into three main categories. The School of Alexandria, in which we find Clement and Origen, the School of Antioch, in which we discover Theodora Mopsuestia and John Christensen, and the Western type of exegesis, where we will discover the likes of Jerome and Augustine. It was Augustine's fourfold sense of scripture that Burkhoff notes, quote, influenced the interpretation of the Middle Ages, end quote. Which brings us to the fourth period, the Medieval Period. This period extends from 600 AD to about 1500 AD up to the Reformation. As Burkhoff notes, quote, In this period, the fourfold sense of scripture, literal, tropological, allegorical, and analogical, was generally accepted, and it became an established principle that the interpretation of the Bible had to adapt itself to tradition and to the doctrine of the church, end quote. Just to give you an example of how this fourfold sense of Scripture works practically, Henry Verkler shows this method of interpretation with regards to the city of Jerusalem. He writes, quote, Literally, Jerusalem refers to the historical city itself. Allegorically, it refers to the Church of Christ. Morally, which is another way to say tropological, it indicates the human soul. And analogically, or eschatologically, it refers to, it points to, the heavenly Jerusalem, end quote. Now, as with most things, the fourfold sense has some good aspects and some bad aspects, which we will discuss during our study. By the time Martin Luther arrives on the scene, the pure, unadulterated interpretation of Scripture had become shrouded in years of tradition and dogma. In fact, while reading a recent biography of Luther's life, I was shocked to discover that Luther spent very little time studying the scriptures themselves while he was in the monastery, as the teachings of the church were prioritized. The medieval period could possibly be summed up, maybe unfairly, but with the words of Hugo of St. Victor, who said, quote, Learn first what you should believe, and then go to the Bible to find it there, end quote. Obviously, we do not recommend that. The fifth period is the Reformation period. This period covers just about the 1500s. The Reformation period was heavily influenced by the Renaissance. Uh, among other things, the Renaissance cultivated a desire to return to the original source documents, which includes, obviously, the scriptures. As a result, men such as Erasmus pointed people back to the original languages. Erasmus published a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which was useful to guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Additionally, possibly even as a result of this emphasis, Verkler notes, quote, The fourfold sense of Scripture was gradually abandoned and replaced with the principle that Scripture has but a single sense, end quote. This period focuses primarily on the work of Luther and John Calvin, but we may even look into others such as Melanchthon and a few of those who remained in the Roman Catholic Church. The sixth period is the post-Reformation period. This period extends from about 1550 AD through about 1800 AD. The early years of this period have often been referred to as the time of confessionalism, the Roman Catholic Church responds to the Protestant Reformation by holding the Council of Trent from around 1545 to 1563. 
during which time they, as Henry Verkler writes, quote, drew up a list of decrees setting forth the dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church and criticizing Protestantism, end quote. The Protestants, likewise, were soon writing their own confessions. For example, the most famous ones are the Westminster Confession and Standards of 1647 and the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Additionally, this period saw the rise of both rationalism and pietism. As Burkhoff notes, rationalism, as its name suggests, quote, proceeds on the assumption that the Bible must be interpreted in a rational way, or perhaps better, in harmony with reason, end quote. Pietism, according to Verkler, arose, quote, as a reaction to the dogmatic and often bitter exegesis of the confessional period, end quote. While there was many good things the pietists brought to the table, eventually they began to advocate for somewhat over-spiritualized approaches to the text. Burkhoff notes, quote, the mystical tendencies of these interpreters led them to find special emphases where none existed, end quote. Which leads to our final period, seven, the modern period. This period extends from 1800 AD through our present day. Now, some of this period I have already discussed in our lessons on meaning. However, as we examine the modern period, we will interact with the among other things, historical critical method, which arose in the 19th century, source criticism, the history of religions of Bauer and Wellhausen, form criticism, Karl Barth, Rudolf Bultmann, and much more. So thus begins our study of the history of hermeneutics. I hope that this study will benefit you and your study of God's word. May the words of the old German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel not be true of us. Hegel wrote, quote, We learn from history that we do not learn from history. End quote. I pray that this study of the history of hermeneutics will be a blessing to us all. <laughs>